you will make your way to Luke chapter 4. Today our text is verses 1 through 13 as we continue in the theme, Jesus came to seek and to save. The message today is entitled, Victory Over Temptation. Now we all know that temptation is a common part of life in a sin-fallen world. Think about how many temptations each of us face just on a daily basis. Uh, We face the temptation to be unkind, uh, the temptation to be impatient when we don't get our way, uh, the temptation to gossip and talk about somebody else uh, when we shouldn't be, uh, the temptation to self-indulgence, and on and on the list goes. We all face situations where we are tempted to do something even though we have reservations about doing it, situations that we know are not right and yet we find them difficult to resist because we're drawn in by our own desires. Temptation is everywhere and it's a part of living in a sin-fallen world. It's been a part of creation since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It's been an unrelenting part of life. Someone once said that opportunity knocks once but temptation knocks the door down. There was an ad campaign just a few years ago for a particular model of a Mercedes-Benz. It was a new model that had come out. And the ad started with a 30-something-year-old man sitting in a cafe. And as the waitress is serving him a cup of coffee, uh, the man looks out the window and he sees two men working up on a new billboard uh, for the Mercedes. And his eyes look longingly at the car and he's thinking about how much he wants it, and then all of a sudden there's a man who's dressed in black who's sitting across the table from him. This man who was dressed in black represents none other than a Satan-type figure, and he says to the young man, nice car. He says, sure is. The shadowy figure holds a gold fountain pen in his hand, and he hands it with his polished fingernails to the young man across the table, and he says temptingly, make a deal with me, kid. And you can have the car and everything that goes along with it. And all of a sudden, as the young man takes the pen, he visualizes himself in a series of scenes that uh, represent all that the world has to offer. Uh, In the first scene, he's driving his Mercedes to a red carpet award ceremony. He exits the car, and he's got a most beautiful woman on his arm. And in the next scene, he's at a nightclub, and he's dancing side by side with some famous people. And then the young man's driving his car in the next scene with uh, several young women who are attractive in the car with him. And then finally, uh, he's uh, he's in a place where he's driving a Formula One race car, speeding by the lead car. Now, here's where this story goes. The ad shifts back to the young man at the table at the cafe, and the tempter says, so what do you say? What do you say? Holding the pen, the young man's eyes stare down at the contract, and he looks back out the window at the Mercedes on the billboard, and then he says, thanks, but I think I've got this. And immediately the tempter disappears in a wisp of smoke. Well, I would say to you in a much more serious kind of a way, we find Jesus in an I got this kind of moment in Luke chapter 4. He's in a circumstance where things are offered to him out of order, out of context, certainly out of the will of God the Father. And his answer essentially is, I got this. 
I will not disobey my father. I will do what God has called me to do. Jesus, no sooner than he'd been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, was led into the wilderness, the scripture says, by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil. Jesus, at this point, was in full consciousness of his divine mission, but he was also in full consciousness of his humanity. He had come to seek and to save the lost, and he was fully committed to the public ministry that was ahead of him. It had been uh, inaugurated, really, at his baptism. Now he's in this brief interlude of preparation in the wilderness, and he's about to get ready to burst onto the public scene, working, serving, ministering, teaching, and the devil has one goal. He wants to turn Jesus away from the mission that God the Father had sent him to do. You see, we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He does it in a variety of ways. He has a lot of different uh, techniques that he uses and tactics that he brings against us, but he has one goal, and that goal is to get us to do what we want to do rather than what God wants us to do. And I think it's important for us to understand the basic sources of temptation. We are tempted first by the world. We live in a sin-fallen world where the Bible says that even creation itself is groaning and crying out for renewal. So the world around us has temptations for us that would cause us to take our eyes off of God. We're also tempted by our own flesh because we have a fallen nature and our humanity draws us in to our own desires rather than what God has for us. Now, while Jesus was attacked according to his humanity, he did not possess that sin fallen nature. He was and remained and is today and will eternally be perfect and complete as we'll see in all of his ways. But then temptation comes from the devil and from his host. And that's the focus of this passage of scripture. So what I want you to do as we focus in just for a few minutes together is to see that in this scripture passage, we find one of the most monumental spiritual battles of all time. This is one of the most epic scenes in all of the Bible, the personal confrontation between Jesus Christ and the devil. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. 
Then verse 13, after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. I want us to think about this message today in two major parts. The first part focusing on the tactics that the enemy uses to try to get us to sin, tempts us to draw our attention away from God. And then the second part to focus on the defenses that God gives to us so that we can have victory over temptation. So let's look at the first. To have victory over temptation, we need to be aware of the tactics of our spiritual enemy. And I'm going to share with you, and we're going to move rather quickly, five tactics of the enemy. Now, the setting was the wilderness. The wilderness was the hot, barren, desolate area that extends from the Dead Sea almost to Jerusalem. It's around 35 miles uh, long and 15 miles wide. It has been described as an area of sand and crumbling limestone, ridged and running in different directions. And when you look upon the vista of the landscape, it looks like piles of dirt that are off in the distance that have been placed in various areas. But the very thing that's important for us to understand here was that it was a desolate place. Jesus was led there by the Spirit of God into this desolate place for the purpose of communing with the Father, but also in order to be tested. It was a foreboding place, a place of loneliness and a place of difficulty. And the situation was a time of temptation. Now, temptation means to test or to prove. It shows whether or not something is real. Uh, It's a morally neutral word in this context. The leading into the wilderness was not an enticement to evil by God. Remember James chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But in the mystery of God's providence, Jesus was led to this place and permitted to be tested. The time frame was 40 days. This number 40 seems to have some significance in the Bible. Uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days receiving the law of God. Uh, In the days of Noah, the rain fell for 40 days and for 40 nights. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. The spies were sent into the land of Canaan to spy out the land for 40 days. Jonah's message to Nineveh was that the city would be destroyed in 40 days. And each of these examples uh, illustrates a time of testing. It illustrates a time of determining whether or not people would look to God or they would do what they wanted to do. The tempter was none other than Satan. The Bible teaches the reality of an evil being called the devil. He's not just an impersonal force. He's referred to as Satan or as the adversary or the devil. You say, well, where did he come from? Well, before the world uh, as we know it was created, God made an innumerable company of angels, according to Hebrews chapter 12. The highest of these Angels in rank and order were the cherubim, and they attended to the throne of God. And there was a particular anointed cherub, uh, Lucifer, who was there at the throne of God, who's described in Ezekiel 28 in verse 14 as being full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And he, along with these angels, were created as free spirits. 
They were created with the ability either to honor God and to do what God had said and to submit to the authority of God, or they could do what they wanted. And you know the rest of the story. There was rebellion at the very throne of God because the devil was not satisfied with his position. He wanted the place that rightfully belonged to only God, and he and all who rebelled were cast down out of heaven. And their entire reason for existence since then has been to fight against God, to fight against God's people, to try to try to thwart the will of God. And what was their sin? It was pride and unbelief. It, it was the thought that somehow they knew better than God. So we're not talking about some impersonal force of evil, which some people believe in. We're talking about an evil being who fights against the will of God. Now, it is important to note that the devil himself is not omnipotent. In a mysterious kind of a way, his power is limited by the sovereignty and the providence of God. So he cannot just do as he pleases. He's not omnipotent. He's also not omnipresent. So the devil proper cannot be in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, and Beijing, China at the same time. He can only be in one place. But the issue is that those who have rebelled against God with him do his bidding and are spread. We don't know how many of them there are throughout the earth, are spread throughout the earth and are influencing and coming against God and his people. Now, at the root of all temptation is an attempt to get us to act independently of God. It was no different in the life of Jesus. The, the root of the temptation that was coming against our Lord was an attempt to get him to act independently of God the Father and to demonstrate something that was disobedient to God. And we are often tested in our faith, just as Jesus was tested, so that we can be useful to God in the future. And you ask the question, was the temptation real? And was it possible for Jesus in his humanity to sin? This is an important theological question. But the very simple answer is yes. The temptation was real. And it was possible for Jesus to do that, but it would have been suicide of the Godhead. It would have meant the end of the salvation plan of God. It would have meant the end of our forgiveness and our deliverance. And there's a sense of mystery here focused on how one person can be both fully God and fully man at the same time. But the temptation, the struggle, the resistance, the victory, it's all very real in the life of Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis said in relation to our attempts to live righteous lives. He said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means, and that's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the fullest what temptation really means. There are three temptations that are described, and from that we find five tactics that our spiritual enemy uses to attempt to steal, kill, and destroy. What are some of those tactics that he uses? First of all, tactic number one, our spiritual enemy selects the timing of the temptation. He selects the timing of the temptation. 
Now, Jesus had gone out there in the wilderness. He's just been baptized. He's communing with the Father. And I believe the scripture indicates here, at least to a degree, that Jesus was tempted over the duration of those 40 days, but with the kind of the peak of the temptations coming there at the end, at the most opportune time to tempt Jesus in his humanity. Verse 2 says very plainly that he ate nothing during those days. He drew near to the Father for 40 days, reminiscent of what Moses had done on Mount Sinai, reminiscent of what Elijah had done in the presence of God. Now understand, a 40-day fast in this sense is a miraculous event. This is not possible from a human physiological standpoint if it were not for the miraculous intervention of God. And the devil tempted Jesus here at a strategic time when he was hungry. He hit him when he was down. And is that not how temptation often comes to us? The enemy uses a strategic time when we are most vulnerable, when we are at our weakest point, when we are most likely to do something that is wrong. He comes in and he slips in the side door and he tries to take us out as best he can. We've got to be on guard and look out in those times of temptation. We've got to be on high alert when we're vulnerable. And it's not only in the valleys that the enemy tempts us, but it can also be on the mountaintops when he tempts us. It can be when we've experienced great victories for God. And in a sense, that's what had just happened in Jesus' life because he's been publicly baptized. He's been anointed in a sense as the Messiah. And now here he is, And the enemy is coming against him. And the devil said to him in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Note that this is the temptation to serve self. If you are the Son of God, literally in the original language means, since you are the Son of God, or uh, in view of the fact that you are the Son of God, So it's not so much a question as it is a challenge. It's not so much a a doubting of who he is, but it's a challenge to Jesus to take advantage of who he was. He says, just tell this stone to become bread. Just do it and satisfy your hunger. You see, the enemy wants us to question whether or not God can be trusted. He wants us to question whether or not the provision that God has given to us is in fact sufficient. He wants us to wonder whether or not God is really taking care of us. And John Piper said, sin gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. And the power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. The devil wants you to distrust God's providential care over your problems and to take matters into your own hands. Tactic number two, our spiritual enemy tries to get us to satisfy genuine needs with disingenuous methods. He wants us to satisfy our basic needs in a way that would dishonor God. Now, obviously, hunger is a legitimate need. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. Some of you are hungry right now. But the issue is, are you going to satisfy your hunger, either literally or metaphorically, are you going to satisfy your hunger in your own way, in a way that would be wrong? 
Are you going to allow the enemy to appeal to what is a natural desire and to exercise a natural desire in an unnatural way? To fulfill a legitimate need in a way that is not genuine before the Lord. That's a tactic that he uses. But then tactic number three, our spiritual enemy disguises truth with error. He disguises truth with error. In the next movement here, he takes him up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world at one time. We don't know how he did that. There's some supernatural thing that's going on here because with the physical eye, we cannot see all of the kingdoms of the earth at one time. This is something that at least uh, God permitted in that moment. And the devil said to him, I'll give you their splendor and all of this authority because it's been given to me and I can give it to anybody that I want to if you then will worship me all will be yours. This is the temptation to divert worship. The devil suggested what he could do for Jesus in the moment. And we're not told where he took Jesus to, but he took him in that moment and tried to tempt him to take what was ultimately his out of order. And he asked Jesus to bow down before him and worship him. This was truth that was mixed with error. Later on, Jesus would call Satan the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age. Yet Satan's authority was at best temporary and limited. And Jesus had the divine and eternal right to all kingdoms. But what the enemy wanted him to do was to take hold of something that was going to be his eventually and demonstrated through his glory and to do it in the moment. Now think about this just for a moment here. The closer that we get to world's worldly influence and possessions and position and power, all the things that go along with privilege and education and ability and going up the ranks of our vocational ladder, the more we find ourselves in close proximity to those things, the more prone we are to do something that's foolish. And I think this particular point here has a very important application for our congregation because God has blessed many of you in incredible ways. He has placed you in positions of influence. And according to the world standards, you are blessed beyond measure with even the possessions of the world. You've been given opportunities that much of the world can never even hope to have as opportunities. But here's what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to cut a corner and shade a truth and set your heart on what you want. He wants you to put all that stuff over God rather than God being first. And he wants to convince you that all of those good things that you've been blessed with in this life are better than what God has for you in the life to come. And if you get drawn into that and your mind is fixed on that and your affections are drawn toward it and you think that all those things are what ultimately have value and you lose sight of what God has for you in the future, then the enemy can defeat you. And he can cause you not to live in faithfulness like the Lord would want you to live. See, we've got to be particularly aware of this. And then tactic number four, our spiritual enemy promises immediate satisfaction without including the consequences. He promises immediate satisfaction without including the consequences. Now, one thing I know is that the devil is a counterfeiter. You know what counterfeiting is. It is an imitation of something that is valuable or important. 
counterfeiting has the purpose of deceiving or defrauding. And the more valuable something is, the more likely it is that it's going to be counterfeited. And the devil wants you to think that you can do it your way and you can get immediate satisfaction sooner, that his deliverance is more than the price that it's going to cost you. And what he never tells you, friends, are the consequences. He never reminds you of the broken family that's going to be left behind. He never reminds you of your reputation that's going to be irreparably damaged. He never reminds you of the personal pain that you'll feel in the failure of life when you do what you want so that you can get what you want in the moment rather than trusting in God in the long run. The payoff is never worth the price. The consequences are never worth the immediate reward. Tactic number five, our spiritual enemy tempts us to take a promise out of uh, context that God has given and misuse and misapply it. He wants you to take the word of God out of context and misuse it and misapply it for your own purposes. Now watch what happens here. When Jesus was taken to Jerusalem, he stood there on the pinnacle of the temple. And again, the statement comes, if you are the son of God in verse 9, throw yourself down from here. Verse 10, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. Verse 11, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, wait a minute. The devil's using the word himself and he's turning it against the author of the word? Are we really surprised? Are we not told in the scripture that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light? Are we not told that his servants also disguise themselves even as servants of righteousness? We should not be surprised that Satan uses the very word of God and turns it against the Son of God. Josephus said that the pinnacle of the temple was about 450 feet from the roof uh, to the ground. Tradition says that the pinnacle of the temple is where the brother of Jesus, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, was martyred by being hurled from the portico. Still hoping to challenge the divine sonship of Jesus, the devil quotes scripture back to him, and what he quotes back to him is Psalm 91. And what he's saying to him is, hey, prove your father's protection. If in fact you're the son of God, then prove this by throwing yourself down and your father will protect you. And Jesus was tempted to attract attention by the spectacular and to take a promise of God out of context. But here's the deal. God is not to be tested. And to test God is to doubt God. And to doubt God is sin. 
And we are tempted to lay hold of some biblical promise and take it out of context. This is the temptation to test God. Beware of the temptation to test God. People do it all the time. They take a Bible verse and they apply it to whatever their selfish desire is in the moment. And they say, well, certainly God's going to bless this. I'm going to claim this promise. There's all kinds of charismania nonsense that goes on like that where they're wrenching a scripture verse out of context and telling us them somehow that, that this is what God has said. Well, that is very dangerous, friends. Because if you take that verse out of context to make it mean something that it never meant, it might just be that the devil's taking it out of context in your life and he's trying to bring you to a point of destruction. You see, to have victory over temptation, we need to be aware of the tactics of our spiritual enemy. But I want to move very quickly to the second part of this message, and that is our defense. To have victory over temptation, we need to depend on the power of God for our defense. And I want to show you three defenses here. The first defense is that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here in Jesus' life. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit had prepared Jesus as the great prophet. The Spirit had prepared Jesus as the sympathetic high priest. The Spirit had presented Jesus as the eternal king. And what I want you to hear today is that if you want to say no to temptation, you've got to learn to first say yes to God. This is not about a try-harder gospel. This is not about a clean your life up and then come to God. This is not about try harder and do better. This is about surrendering to the power of the Spirit. If you are walking in the power of the flesh, you will always give in to the flesh and you will always sin. If you're walking in the power of the Spirit, you always look to the Savior and you'll have victory in your life over these things that would tempt you. Galatians 5 and verse 16 says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, this verse doesn't say you're not going to have any desires of the flesh. It says you will not fulfill them because you're walking in the Spirit. Why do you think the Bible says keep on being filled with the Spirit? We have all of the Spirit of God when He seals us for the day of redemption. He indwells us in our lives when we come to know Christ. But the issue is, are we yielding ourselves to him? Are we surrendered to him? And in Galatians chapter 5, there's that contrast between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit that is born out of that. And it's so important for us because this is where we live our Christian life. And if we're trying to do this on our own, we're going to be in this perpetual cycle of of defeat and discouragement and disappointment. And we're going to wonder, why are we not having victory in our Christian life? And why can't I overcome that problem? And why am I doing the same thing that I was doing five years ago? And the answer is because you're trying to do it in the flesh rather than the spirit. Because it's in the spirit that we can have victory. And Jesus was led there by the spirit. He was undergirded by the spirit. He was ministered to by the spirit. And he was faithful. Defense number two, I've already referenced this in the tactics, but you need to be on guard and expect temptation. Be on guard and expect temptation is defense number two. Jesus moved out into the wilderness alone. He contemplated the work that was in front of him. He meditated on the will of God the Father. He was preparing himself and it was in that moment that satan came to him now let's think about some biblical examples 
Temptation came to Noah after he got off the ark. Temptation came to Abram after he first entered Canaan. Temptation came to the Israelites after they had seen that great victory at the Red Sea. Temptation came to Elijah after he had seen the power of God on Mount Carmel. Temptation came to Peter after he confessed Jesus as the Christ. You see, temptation is going to come more aggressively towards you if your heart is to serve God. That's when the attacks are going to come. When you step into the will of God and you say, God, here I am, use me. I want to depend on your spirit. I, I want to be useful for you in the kingdom. The enemy wants to do everything that he can to try to draw your attention away from that. And you know what the enemy sometimes does? He uses things that are good, but they're not the best. He uses things that will cause us to reorder our priorities. And did you know that you can reorder your priorities away from God with good things and yet it still be sin in your life because it's not what God wants for you, it's not what God's best for you is? We've got to determine what are our priorities and then when we determine our priorities, we're on guard and we expect temptation. And defense number three, most importantly, is we've got to know the Word of God. You'll note here in this passage that each time Satan attacked, Jesus answered with Scripture. The devil said to Jesus in verse 3, Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus replied in verse 4, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. Matthew's gospel includes, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. So what Jesus did was he countered this temptation by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verse 2 and 3. The situation was that Moses had reminded the people of the manna that God had given to them in the wilderness. He reminded Israel of God's tender care for them as they're on this wilderness journey. The manna was on the ground, but it was still a test of faith for the people. They had to believe that God's word was trustworthy. And if it was not God's will for them to live, they would have died. And if it's not God's will for us, we would die as well. And God can support his people through ordinary and through extraordinary means. And then the devil said to Jesus in verse 5 and 6 that he would give him the splendor of the kingdoms of the world in a moment. Jesus countered the temptation again by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 13, that says, Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Moses had warned the people who were being attracted to idolatry that there could be no compromise. And watch this. Jesus was unwilling to make a deal with a power broker, as it was in the world, and to take the path of least resistance that had an instant payoff. Instead, he took the path of the cross. And if our Lord took the path of the cross, then we should desire to do the same if we want to be like him. Matthew 16 and verse 24 says, if anyone would come after me, Jesus speaking, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And then the devil said to Jesus in verse 9 and 10, again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he twisted the scripture in Psalm 91, a wisdom psalm. 
But Jesus knew enough to know that as God's son, he could never do anything to test the father. And he resisted the temptation the third time by quoting from the scripture a third time in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. Now what happened there was years before the Israelites uh, tested God by complaining about his provision before God provided water. And their faithless actions brought God's hand of judgment upon them. And let me tell you, misapplying Scripture is disastrous. But applying Scripture to our lives and memorizing it uh, it delivers us. It gives us victory. That's why Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now, this is a given, but I've got to say it here. If you want the word of God to be brought to mind by the Spirit of God so that you'll have a defense in your time of testing, in your time of temptation, that means that you need to know the word of God. It means that you've got to hide it in your heart. And even if you don't have it memorized, word perfect. And and without uh, every single word or comma that's in there, what the Spirit of God will do is He will bring that word to mind in your head, in your heart, and in your soul. And He'll help you stand when you're tempted. And He'll bring to mind that defense that the Lord has for you. And I give you this thought, and I'm going to close. Victory over temptation comes from surrender to God. So let me say again what I said earlier in the message. If you want to say no to temptation, then you need to first say yes to God. If you want to have victory, you need to look to the victor. And the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is our victory. The Bible says no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to bear it. So the Lord doesn't tempt us. The Lord delivers us. And he'll give you what you need. Jesus is our victory. We look to him, not, not just as our example. He, he, he's the preeminent example, but we look to him as the one who delivers us because it was on the cross that he bore the weight of our sin, that he was crucified, and that he died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he rose from the dead. And today he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what is he doing? He's making intercession for us. He's praying for you. In the moment of darkness, when you're tempted to turn and to disobey God and to take your own path and to do your own thing and to act independently of God, Jesus Christ is praying for you. The Spirit of God is indwelling you. The Word of God is guiding you. And if you'll say yes to these, God will deliver you. He'll give you the victory. And I know enough to know in a group this size today, there's some folks who've been, been struggling with some things maybe for years. And you keep thinking, why am I not delivered? Well, if you're saved, I just ask you, are you living the, 
spirit-filled life? Are you in the Word? Are you communing with the Father? Are you surrounding yourself with other people who are in the Word and who are communing with the Father and who want to have victory? God can deliver you from even the most difficult of life-besetting sins. He can give you the victory. And He can give all of us the victory to live for Jesus every day. So this is about the Christian life. It's about the glory of our Savior. It's about our desire to reflect and honor Him in all that we do. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment before we close out the service. We've heard from the life of Jesus, a most powerful example of temptation and victory. And only God and His Spirit know where your heart is today. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, verse 20, Psalm 24 says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus said in the Beatitudes. We want to be pure in heart. We want to have clean hands and a pure heart. I wonder right where you're seated in this moment as a Christian, if there's some things in your life that you know are not honoring God. Would you just take a moment to repent of those and ask the Lord to help you? Ask the Lord to deliver you. Ask the Lord to give you the victory through the blood of Christ. For all of us as Christians, we should be praying that the Lord would help us even as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Ask the Lord to help us, to protect us, to place that hedge around us so that we could be useful for him. And maybe you're in a dark moment and you feel like you failed God. And you don't know the way out. The way out of the darkness is through the light. And if you're a follower of the Lord, even if you've fallen far, the Lord stands ready to forgive you and by His grace and mercy receive you back into a right relationship with Him. Don't go further into the darkness. Step into the light. Step into the light. Maybe there's somebody here that's never trusted Christ and you've been thinking, this, this life is really hard. I've heard all these things that I ought to be doing and how I ought to be living. I can't do it. Well, you're right. You can't do it. You'll never be able to do it. We can't measure up. We only measure up through the righteousness of our Savior. Maybe you need to trust Him. Take a step of faith today. Father, we thank You for Your Word thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. And I pray that as we meditate on these truths in the coming week, that uh, as a result of it, we would be more like Jesus, who is our help, who is our victory. And Lord, that as a church, uh, we'd not just be going through the motions, but we would care about lives that honor the king in all that we do. So we give this time of closing response over to you and ask you to work in as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.